And I have often seen that these two major sources of psychosomatic diseases, especially psychological disorders, in middle-aged people. He said, one is fear of death. And the second one is a disconnect from their religious tradition. They have somehow lost touch with, with their spiritual or religious tradition. And he says, in, in therapy, I always encourage them to get back in touch with their own church or whichever tradition they have. <coughs> but it's difficult in today's world. Just in the earlier session, I was saying, saying this, um, you know, today if you open these uh, talks by Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, uh, the new atheists, and get a solid blasting where they tear down religion mercilessly. You'll often see these debates between the new atheists and various pastors and uh, uh, rabbis, usually pastors and rabbis. And they simply, they are reduced to ridicule. The religion, they make religion sound so silly and unbelievable. Even the most fierce defense by theologians, it, it doesn't stand when you, are, when you are subjected to searching criticism. I quoted Richard Dawkins this morning where somebody asked him, you don't believe in religion, but that's, uh, people who, are, who do not believe in religion are minority, tiny minority. Vast majority of people in the world believe in some form of faith, some, some form of God, some kind of religion. And his answer was devastating. He said, yes, majority of people in the world, vast majority, 90% or more, 99% believe in God in some form or the other. All right. But then he says, if you look at Nobel Prize winner, scientists, with far fewer actually believe in God. And if you look at Nobel Prize winners, there was a survey conducted. Turns out 80 to 90% of them are atheists. At least the Nobel Prize winners in science, I think, atheists. And the conclusion is, the more stupid you are, the more likely you have to have faith in God. The more smart you are, the less likely you are to have faith, to have faith in God. So faith in God, while a very good thing, is under attack. Always has been, but more so. Somebody pointed out, this is for the first time in history, we live in a world where large numbers of people, they've always been atheists. In every religion in the world, you find accounts of atheists in their time. Always. In, in India also, you find this whole range of materialists who scoffed religion in all forms. Charvaka. But for the first time in human history, at least what we know about, large numbers of people, tens of millions, are openly not interested in religion. They say we, we belong to none, not anyone, none. N-O-N-E. Which religion do we belong to? N-O-N-E. None. And that's one of the largest and fastest growing number uh, sections in among the young people in the United States. None. I don't believe belong to any religion. So that that approach is a little problematic in today's age. There is another approach to religion. That is the approach of experience, not belief, not believing in something, not giving your assent to something, not believing just because our forefathers believed in it and therefore it's we believe in it. No. Experience. Swami Vivekananda, when he came to this country more than 100 years ago, came speaking the, the language of experience. He didn't do it specifically because he came to this country. Remember, he came into religion with that, that approach. How did Swami Vivekananda become Swami Vivekananda? The young student Narendranath Dutta. Um, 
Come in, come in. Do come in. Come. Come, come. <coughs> so how did Vivekananda become Vivekananda? This young man, Narendranath Dutta, went around asking, have you seen God? When you ask this question, have you seen God, you are not speaking about faith. You are speaking about experience, right? Am I making sense, what I am talking about? Mm -hmm. So he is talking about a different paradigm of religion. Have you experienced God? He is not saying that does God exist, do you believe in God? He is not asking that. He is not asking what are the arguments in support of the existence of God. He is not even asking that. Come, come. He is not even asking that. He is asking, can you experience God? Have you experienced God? Can I experience God? So that's the language of experience. And that's what he brought into this country. The language of experience had always been spoken about in, in India. In India, it's full of stories of people, um, not only yogis and mystics, but most ordinary people also, who have had visions of God, who have had mystical experiences. So that has always been the purpose of religion in India, that you ultimately, whatever you are, you're, you, don't, you have to realize these things, experience these things for yourself, not take it second hand. So that's another approach. Let's call it the yogic approach. The yogi says, no, 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 not belief. A certain amount of faith to start with is necessary, otherwise you won't start any enterprise. But ultimately I must, as in Vivekananda's words, if there is God, I must see I must see God. If I have an immortal soul, I must feel it. So the language of experience. And yoga tells us this. And in fact, all the paths in Hinduism or Buddhism, especially Hinduism, they tell us that you do these practices and you will ultimately get an experience of these things. You will realize these things. Patanjali Yoga, the Yoga Sutras. What do they say? They don't say this is um, real, that there is an ultimate purusha, pure consciousness beyond material nature. Believe in it, for I am the prophet of pure consciousness. No, no, no. You must experience this for yourself, within yourself, in your body, mind. You must distinguish this real nature which is beyond the, behind the veil of the mind by these practices. Here are detailed, clear practices which you have to pursue and get these experiences. Alright, this is another, another path. But neither of this, nor the path of belief, nor the path of experience, is what I am going to talk about. I have said this to clarify, distinguish these from what I am going to talk about. You say, what is wrong with the path of experience? Nothing, but there is, there is a problem with it. One problem is, first of all, these experiences we talk about, these are extraordinary experiences, not everybody has them. And if you claim that you have those experiences and prove something to you, there are um, counter-arguments. A neuroscientist might come and say that you had a stroke in the uh, right hemisphere of your brain and there is this little clot, that's why you are getting these feelings. No, 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 you are not one with the universe. You just feel like that. It's a problem with your brain. No, 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 you are not exposed to universal consciousness. No such thing as universal consciousness. You are just having a stroke. He could say that. Or, alternatively, and these things have been said, alternatively, what you are talking about, these yogic experiences, I can duplicate it, just give you a dose of a particular drug, you will have the experience. So what does it prove? What does it actually prove? 
just having the experience does not prove anything. Not only that, in a most serious case, you see the lives of these mystics who had these experiences and probably no one had it more than Sri Ramakrishna. Note that before he was, before the gurus came and started teaching him and he was exposed to different traditions, he already had those experiences by himself. And what was the result? One result, of course, he was elevated, always felt sublime and uplifted, but also doubtful. You note in his life, in biography, he said, he's thinking, are these hallucinations? Because nobody else has them. These are extraordinary experiences. I have it. I see the mother Kali. Nobody else sees it. So is it hallucination? Am I sick? He thought that. If what I have seen is true, this stone will jump three times. It jumped three times, but anyway. <laughs> but even that could be seen as a hallucination. So even a genuine mystic like Sri Ramakrishna doubts it. One problem. So even after having those experiences, it could be open to multiple interpretations. Another problem is these experiences are rare and difficult. The Yoga Sutra makes no pretension about it. Dirga Kala, for a long time, Sapkar Sevita, with great care, consistency, you practice it. Not little bit of mindfulness now and then. No, no. You consistently, it becomes the main project of your life. It can't be a part time effort. It becomes the main, you become what is called a sadhaka, a spiritual practitioner. That becomes the main theme of your life. And for many years, and success is not guaranteed, at least not in. If you don't get it with you, you'll say that next life, Krishna says in the Gita. So that kind of time frame is little discouraging. So as opposed to these two approaches, which are the main well-known approaches, there is a third approach, which is subtle. It is the way of jnana, knowledge. What is this approach? It says, what we are seeking is our own true nature. You are Brahman. You are that ultimate reality. Constricted, um, filtered or limited by this body-mind. We are not this body-mind. It's like we have put on a mask and we can't get it off now. We have forgotten ourselves, we are totally identified with the mask. In fact, the word personality means mask. Persona means mask. The word persona means mask. We have put on a mask. What's the mask? This person. And the reality which we are seeking is right now, right here. If it is right now and right here, why go anywhere for it? Why wait for it? 30 years, 40 years, next lifetime? I, it's right here. I am, I am it. Why can I not discover it right here, right now? Why should it take so much effort? How much effort? So an actor, suppose, acts as some other person, maybe uh, Macbeth or something like that. Does it take effort? Yes. You have to prepare, you have to change your mindset, you have to learn the lines. A lot of hard work to play a role. Now suppose the actor is just being the actor, the, the person. How much effort does it take? Suppose you play something in your school role, uh, drama, like a Shakespearean role. It takes effort. You have to learn it, you have to change your acting, your behavior, your speech, your way of thinking to give a good performance. A lot of effort. 
But now suppose you are just being yourself, just nothing. You are you. How much effort does it take? No. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> so if it, I am Brahman, it should be effortless. Why so much lifetime after lifetime? The main theme of your life should be spiritual seeking. Why? So the path of knowledge says true. It can be instantaneous and it can be effortless in a particular sense. It can be. So that's what the immediately attracts our attention. Really? Effortless? Instantaneous? I'll sign me up. <laughs> There's a little bit of fine print to it, but... <laughs> but yes, in a, in a certain very uh, important sense, it is instantaneous and it is effortless. What does the path of knowledge say? Not faith or believing. Not even special yogic exercises to have extraordinary experiences. No, no, no. Just our ordinary experiences, which all of us already have. What experiences? Just the experience of waking and dreaming and deep sleep, for example. We will use these experiences, which we all have, and then investigate. The Upanishads, the Vedanta, show us how to investigate. We'll see how to investigate. By this investigation, the true nature of what already exists will be revealed to us and the problem is solved. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep, that's one experience, we have. that's our common experience. Everybody, who is not awake, who does not dream, who does not sleep, we know what it means. If you say, no, no, first by Nirvikalpa Samadhi, then only you will see. Then we have nothing more to say. We may be right, Swami, I don't know. But waking, dreaming, deep sleep, yes, you can tell it. Check, 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 yes, I've got that. What do you want me to say? Now the Upanishad says, come to Mandukya Upanishad, we will show you. This is the state of waking. These are the characteristics. True or not? Yes. This is what happens in your dream. True or not? That's what you experience. Yes. This is what happens in deep sleep. That's what you experience. Now see what is underlying all of that, common to that. It's pointed out to us again and again. At first it may not be obvious, but then you begin to see, yes, they're trying to talk about something right here now, present now. Or another experience, the seer and the seen. I've often spoken about this, Drishya. What you experience, see, hear, smell, the, the object of experience, and I, the experiencer. Just take this. Who does not have it? Everybody has it. And then do we have it right now also? Right? Take this, and we will show you step by step, take you to your real nature, the witness consciousness, Brahman. Or the, the experience of being in a body. See, most common experience. Here, physical body. Look inwards. The pranic body. Look further inwards. The mental body. Mind, our thoughts, feelings, personality. Look further inwards. The intellect. The sheet of the intellect. The pancha kosha vichara. The method of the five sheets. What? Look at all of these methods. They are called prakriya, methodologies. What they do is, they take commonly available experiences, which everybody has. They don't say that, first come get this samadhi and then come to me, I will tell you something about it. No. What you already have, then I will step by step lead you to what the Upanishad say, that you are Brahman, you will actually see for yourself. That yes, it is true. And once you see for yourself, the problem is solved. The prayer with which we started, Asatoma Sadgamaya, the whole project of Advaita Vedanta is that we are stuck in the appearance. We have lost touch with the reality is right here. Without reality, no appearance. Without appearance, reality can exist. 
But without reality, appearance cannot exist. The false snake cannot exist without the real rope. The mirage in the desert cannot exist without the desert. The opposite is true. The desert can exist without the mirage. The rope can exist without being misperceived as a snake. It's true. So the reality right here, we have to discover it from the unreal to the real. We just chanted that. Asatoma Sadkamaya. How do you do that? The next line tells us, Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya, from darkness of ignorance to the light of knowledge. Knowledge is the way. What hides this reality from us? Only ignorance. We don't know it. We don't see it. If you do not know it, if you do not see it, you just have to know it or see it. It's, it's not as easy as that, but at its heart it is that. Enlightenment. Look at the word. It is coming into a knowing, a realization. Suddenly a paradigm shifts. So that is what is the purpose of Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta. What will be the result? Why do we do it? The third line of the prayer. Mrityodhavritamgamaya. Take us from death to immortality. The way the whole spiritual life is understood in India is that we are going through a cycle of birth and death. In the Gita, Sri Krishna says, Jatasyali dhruvo mrityu. For the born, death is certain. And so just don't, don't just not say, yeah, yeah, I know that. We all know that. We don't pay attention to it. And that's why Jung said, most of the psychological diseases I come across in my clients are because they're denying death. And mritasya hi dhruvam jagma, mritasya. Those who die, there's another thing that Krishna says. They are not gone. They will come back again. So that's good news. Not good news. <laughs> For an Indian, not good news. That's the bad news. You are stuck to this wheel of torture until you learn your lesson. You repeat school. And, and so the whole project of liberation is liberation from this cycle. If you say that, look, a lot of this thing depends on belief. Because I understand I'm living now, but after death, I will go to other lives. Before my birth, I had other lives. Isn't that a kind of religious belief that you Indians have? Alright, you need not accept that paradigm. Just take this life. In this life, what is our problem? Dukkha, suffering. That's what the Buddha started with. Suffering is the problem. Can suffering be solved? In its deepest essence, can suffering be solved? Truly can suffering be solved. And we are seeking fulfillment, lasting joy, bliss, satisfaction, fulfillment, whatever you call it. So can it be attained? We get temporary joy in different things. Can it be attained? And Vedanta says, yes, by discovering this reality within us, you reach complete fulfillment. A completion where you do not seek anything more. Sri Krishna declares in the Gita, Trishu Lokeshu, that in the three words I have nothing to gain. So wouldn't that person be bored and drop away from life? Next Krishna says, yet I am ceaselessly engaged in action for the welfare of others. So it's not that you would drop out of life. You would definitely contribute more to life. Okay. So Project from the unreal to the real. Method from ignorance to knowledge. Knowledge. 
and result you gain you go beyond suffering go, go beyond sorrow so that method here is it is not say by meditation or by believing or by devotion no by inquiry so the method here is an inquiry in sanskrit it is called vichara an inquiry inquiry based on what based on our experiences but not a free inquiry it's an inquiry guided by the upanishads often people think the upanishads so you are think uh, you are thinking about who am i no it's not a free thinking about who am i that can lead you anywhere who knows the upanishads the teachers of upanishads know perfectly well they where they want to lead you so they are not doing free thinking there they are thinking that they already know if you are if you know your subject when you teach your students they may feel that they are on a subject of discovery that they are on a, on a path of discovery new and new things are coming wow where is this going you know where you are taking the students because you already know the whole thing so the the sages of the upanishads they know they are attained they are taking us to this process of inquiry where we are discovering step by step that is true but it's not free inquiry that way neither is it phase see we are think accustomed to thinking in binary especially in the modern west well, not just the west and the same thing is happening in india also if you say religion people reject it oh that's fate i don't believe in these things what do you believe in free thinking now vedanta is neither that kind of free thinking where you sit and do armchair philosophy nor is it the kind of uh, non questioning faith or belief no here is something it, it is already known and understood and we are trying to sort of download that app into our system and discover for ourselves right if i wish to stop me i have a tendency to go on and off and on it's my favorite subject after all do you have a question a comment we can take off from there so yes how do we can explain the mystic occurrences and powers of people as it is straight talking to them true and, and second question is how do we explain the time as well right some of these people who see future and things like that in time true 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 and third third, third wait patient <laughs> Yes. Now, the moment we put Ananda is in Dukkha, also one of the subjects become equally. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Um, so the first two questions are related, basically. Mystic visions and powers are not being denied by Vedanta. No, no, not at all. so what patanjali yoga says for example there is a whole chapter on mystic powers we are not saying they are wrong or they are false or they didn't happen of course they can happen these potentialities are there there is nothing extraordinary they are extraordinary but there is nothing uh, supernatural about them it's just a part of our nature which we do not know it's a part of the potential of this body and mind which we have not known or manifested or explored yogis can do extraordinary things with their bodies it's not supernatural it's the in fact a healthy and trained body can do those things we just don't know it so if you practice those things the whole all those things like telepathy and many other things foretelling the future knowing the thoughts of others those things come especially if you practice that particular path see depending on which which route you take if you take the scenic route 
then you see many more things. So if you take the yogic path, if your GPS guru positioning system somebody said, <laughs> so if it takes you down the yogic path, then you will come across these psychic experiences and supernatural powers. All those things happen. I have seen monks um, in our order develop those things. Of course, remember, in all these facts, you are strictly warned against chasing those things. Because they are diversions from spirituality. The temptations of the world, they are, um, uh, they divert a person away easily. And those temptations are even more powerful because they are subtler and more powerful and attractive and extraordinary. So once yogis get those powers, the desire to use those powers, if you could, if you are like Superman, you would like to fly about a little bit and impress people. <laughs> I knew a practitioner, an American guy, who showed some of his powers at a, at a yoga meet. Um, now, you can, magicians can all have all sorts of tricks, you know. So it could be those tricks, you know. So I asked him to just to convince myself, does he really have those powers? So I proposed a simple test for him, which will convince me and nobody else. So I just went to him, you know, one day after breakfast, I saw him standing there with a friend of his. I just walked up to him and said, straight away, no preparation, nothing, bang. Tell me what I'm thinking now. And he told me. Now, I asked him, what does your, so uh, where did you get these powers? And he said, it's not that I did any spiritual practice to get them, I had them. Which means it's a possibility in the human mind to have those things. If they are not there, Patanjali Yoga Sutra says, do these things and you'll get those powers. Then I asked him the second question, the important one, what does your guru say about it? He's a follower of a spiritual teacher. So he said, my guru says they are nonsense. So the yogis did have these powers. They still do. I have met myself, um, some great swamis of our order, very openly. There is Swami Vireshwaranandaji, um, who was the 10th president of our order. Many such, one example I'm giving you. He was the 10th president of our order. Um, he was a disciple of the uh, Holy Mother, Mashanta. So, reputedly, he had these extraordinary powers, the devotees would say that. Now, what I, it was told to me by a monk who experienced it, who was his seva attendant. So, the senior Swami, the president, he would sit and people would file past. If you have gone to our main monastery in Belumat, you know how it is done. President Maharaj, the head of the order, he sits and we all go in a queue and bow down. So, people pass by and you will see the attendant monks are standing behind the <coughs> president Swami. So, this monk was on duty that day. And he wanted to test. He said, he had heard so many times that the Swami sees what's in our mind. And he said, let me see. So he stood behind the Swami. And, and he told me, obviously, first time, that's his experience. He started thinking all nonsense, all unmonk-like thoughts. <laughs> on purpose. And the Swami is sitting there. He's standing behind and thinking these thoughts. And the Swami would sit like this. It was a tiny, tiny man. And suddenly he turns around like this and says, Enough of examining, uh, enough of examining me. <laughs> enough of testing me. And he turns back again. What will you say to that? And this is just one example. There are many such. 
So, even on the path, suppose you do not practice Patanjali Yoga. Patanjali Yoga, if you do, you are bound to develop some of these powers. If you do not do other paths, even a devotee who just loves God and prays to God, they sometimes develop these powers. Why? Because in whichever path you do, you are uncovering, you are using the mind, purifying the mind and uncovering hitherto unexplored and unused dimensions of our subtle body, Sukshma Sharira. And these powers come into play. So possibly if we really let a yogic life, everybody should have had this power. Um, to some extent. But they are dangerous. And you come across them in every religious tradition of the world. Yeah. Christian mystics, Sufi mystics, Buddhists. One Buddhist uh, teacher, uh, one Buddhist story is that um, uh, they went out begging. When they came back, they reported to the Buddha that this monk, they were excited, this monk has developed his extraordinary powers. He, his, uh, he, can, he floated up in the air or something like that. The Buddha said, call him. So they were, the monk was called and the Buddha said, give me your begging bowl. He took the begging bowl and smashed it on the ground. This is a sign that you are expelled from monkhood. So, no, never use these powers. I remember once when we were novices, there was this strange brahmachari. Now brahmachari is a novice monk. He had, we were in, we were in uh, Deoghar, which is an ancient temple of Shiva, Vaidyanatha. Um, this uh, Brahmachari, we used to see, he was an extraordinary person. He was nearly seven feet tall and skinny, dark, seven feet tall and skinny. And he would, uh, that's fine, I'm doing good. Um, and he would sit day and night in the temple and meditate. And once in a while he would come to the ashram. One day we saw our head monk, the senior monk, severely scolding that Brahmachari. Then later we asked him, what happened? He, we saw that he's a very sincere person. And uh, then the monk told us, he came and he was displaying an occult power he has developed. And it became clear that all the practices he had been performing, the severe austerities, tapasya, which he had been doing, and all been for this, developing these things. So the monk scolded him very sharply to snap him out of it. Yes. <coughs> Remember, the, uh, hold on, don't forget the question. I think I have one more thing I forgot to address. Yeah. Is Dukkha also part of the makeup? No. What is Sukha and Dukkha? As I showed uh, in the morning today, your very nature as Ananda is expressed when it is reflected in a calm mind. That is experienced as Sukha, happiness, worldly happiness, or even spiritual happiness. Okay? One. If it is not so reflected, then the experience is dukkha, suffering. So the, re the reflector is fine. If the mind is fine, positive, pure, relaxed, you will feel happy. That is sukha. Or if you generate a desire and satisfy it, for a time being you will feel happy. That is sukha. That's a tiny reflection. The original verse said, a fraction of which, the infinite ocean of ananda within you, a fraction of which is enjoyed by the gods in the heaven. Shakra, you know, the Yeah. So when you do not get that, why do you not get that? Because somehow there is some obstruction in the mind, a desire is there, frustration is there, negativity is there, then that is dukkha. But ananda itself, its natural expression is 
is sukha. Its obstruction is sukha. In the mind. Yeah. Consciousness, ananda and existence are three, not attributes, the three aspects are, they're the same thing basically. Sat, chit, ananda. And so when, it is, when you know yourself as that, there is no reason to feel dukkha anymore. You know that you are complete. There is nothing more that you could need. You are the infinite. So what could you need possibly? What would make you unhappy? There might be minor disturbances at the level of one individual body mind. That is there. Nobody can prevent the ultimate uh, death, disease, old age and death of this particular body. Because it's produced by nature, it will go in the way of nature. And while going, it will give you a little prick and uh, it will give you a little trouble. So that will be there. But because of the infinite within, it is as nothing to you. But when we hold on to this alone without any inkling of what we truly are, then it is terrible suffering. Yes. So my question is in connection to what you, you just said. Um, I have been listening to your Advaita uh, Vedanta session on uh, SoundCloud. Uh, so many times this body and mind, uh, you know, even if I follow you and, and whenever I understand it, uh, but still when body gives a pain, all this learning and knowledge goes away, all gyan goes, you know, it, it's totally vanished and completely you are, at, for, in that moment you are uh, in pain, you, you are just not following that, you are not a body, you are not a mind, mm. and you are just a, a, so then that happens so frequently in life, um, and apart from that there are social responsibilities which which you carry and you feel the pain and burden of that, mm. uh, which sometimes uh, reflects in your body uh, and the pain and, and everything. So all in all, uh, even if I wish to be free to enlighten. There are things that still keeps me clutched into the situation, into that that thing. How would I? What would I do to get out of this clutch? Um, and I, I know some of the uh, mention that you've done, but it would be great if you can just summarize and say, you do this, this will be your medicine, or this will be your right. Medicine. It's an important question. We all face it. Anybody who is, is walking on the path of non-dual Vedanta will come across this question. What is the question? It's not working, Swami. <laughs> First, let's understand why is it not working. What have I been asked to do? Take in these teachings, consider them, argue over them until you reason it out, until it's clear to me, then assimilate them until it seems real to me at least. Now, the problem is in the third stage, usually. Before this, the problem would have been, you would have said that, I heard you, but I didn't quite uh, understand this. Can you explain? So, there's a, there's a question, and you need to an answer for that, an argument to solve the confusion. But now you are saying, all that apart, why is it not working in day-to-day -day life? It should overcome suffering. It's nice as a philosophy, but it's not overcoming suffering. I'll give you the answer the traditional Vedanti in the Himalayas would give. They have a very specific term for this. Paroksha Jnana cannot destroy aparoksha suffering. Paroksha means indirect knowledge. Indirect knowledge in the sense I have read it, I have understood it and I know it's a possibility, I have got some intellectual clarity about it. But that's it. 
I still feel I am a body and mind. So whatever happens to body and mind, I suffer that. This feeling is a direct feeling, it's not a theoretical feeling. I feel I am this. I didn't have to attend classes to understand or realize this. This is natural from birth. This is what has been taking me from life to life. So it's deeply ingrained. It's a direct experience that I am body and mind is a direct experience. It's not a theoretical construct. As long as Vedanta remains up here as a theoretical construct, until that point, it is not enough, it's not powerful enough to cut down uh, this direct so-called experience that I am the body. I'm saying so-called because it's a false experience. So what do you have to do? The indirect knowledge, it's called paroksha jnana, has to be converted into direct experience or direct knowledge, aparoksha jnana. What is aparoksha jnana? What's the relationship? What you have studied and what you have understood and what you have become convinced about, clarity, that itself will deepen into a paroksha jnana. But that's why Vedanta comes with the fine print. It's at this point you need to look at the fine print. Where they will say, Sadhan Chatushtaya Sampanna Pramata Adhikari. This is a sentence. It says, Who is qualified for Vedanta? The one who has fourfold qualifications. What are those fourfold qualifications? Viveka. Vairagya, the six-fold disciplines and intense desire to be free, Mumukshutva. What is Viveka? A clarity that there is an eternal spiritual reality and everything else is transient. We, we studied in the third verse, Shashwan Nashwaram Eva Vishwamakilam Nishchitya Vacha Guru. Today we were studying yesterday. That the whole world is impermanent. Anityam, Manityam, Sarva Manityam, impermanent. Everything is impermanent. Everything is going to flow away from my hands. And there is something which is an eternal reality worth attaining, worth realizing. And then second, second qualification, a disposition to let go, disregard the non-eternal and to turn my, my attention to the eternal. That I am Brahman, let me try to realize this. And this is backed up by power. Where does power come from? Discipline. Shama, quietness of the mind. Dhamma, control of the body, senses. Uparati, turning the mind away from excessive engagement with the world. Samadhana, focus, focus on Vedanta. Not focus on world, focus on Vedanta. And then Titiksha, a spiritual toughness in spite of problems. I may have physical problems, I will continue with the Vedantic pursuit, spiritual life. I may have social problems, financial problems, health problems, whatever it is. The world will keep throwing these problems at me. Do I not put up with these problems for a career, for raising a family? We all do that. To run an ashram. Someday I may feel healthy, someday I may feel sick, someday I may not be in the mood, but I have to do it. So, this kind of spiritual toughness is required in, in uh, Vedanta. Whatever problem the world throws at me, I will stick to my spiritual quest. Titiksha. And then, Shraddha, a working faith that what these people are saying, the texts are saying, the teachers are saying, it's true. I don't, I don't realize it yet, but others have and they have benefited from it. Let me try and I'll get it. That kind of faith, a working faith. So, and the intense desire to be free. So, this kind of qualification 
as we develop how will we develop these when this kind of qualification is there our study of vedanta easily becomes it it lights up into reality then we can clearly see when the pain is coming yes it's an object i can actually say in the middle of the pain it's still hurting but i can see i am the experiencer it's an experienced object like this object it's an object like this body it's an object like the breath it's an object a sensation pain is what else is a sensation it's also an object to consciousness i can actually stand as consciousness and look at the pain and there are any number of ex- um, examples which we read about and which i have seen also in my life people can do that mortal pain at the time time of death just today in the morning i'm telling you about shikshanand ji who suffered from liver cancer and died all throughout serene the doctors are saying that he must be in excruciating pain but no so it is possible but what you are saying is also true there's a funny story <laughs> a monk the two stories go together turiyananda ji story swami turiyananda was a disciple of sri ramakrishna very great vedantic he came to this country west coast at shanti ashram and all new york also was there vedanta society hari maharaj um, when he was a young student he used to visit sri ramakrishna and sri ramakrishna was dying of throat cancer a doctor recently told me it's one of the nastier forms of cancer because uh, one one reason is of course you can't eat properly it hurts all the time and even you can't swallow your saliva that pours out of the mouth it's, it's pretty difficult i mean it's uh, difficult to manage the patient that way so sri ramakrishna is emaciated reduced to a skeleton lying on the bed and the devotees are taking care of him towards the end of his life and this young man comes hari maharaj uh, hari he comes and says sir how are you today he says it hurts i can't eat sri ramakrishna says that and hari the young boy he says but i see that you are in great bliss it's a cruel thing to say to a cancer patient who died of terminal cancer but look at the reply sri ramakrishna bursts into a smile and he says oh the rascal has found me out in <laughs> <laughs> bengali shaladhari yes which means it's true how can it be true that actually was it was sri ramakrishna lying when he said oh it hurts i can't eat that's true but it's also true at a deeper level it's nothing to me because i am not the body as this body sickens and dies it's still nothing to me clearly that other dimension which is ever present hidden to us is clear, is clear to him so these are two sides but it requires hari maharaj himself in his old age turiyananda ji there is a, a documented many people have seen it a wound in his finger was lanced and the doctor surgeon came and said at that time swami turiyananda was quite advanced in years it i have to put anesthesia it's going to hurt a lot remember to cut deep and he said no just cut are you sure swami it's going to hurt he said yes go ahead and they did it they cut deep to their amazement and the amazement of people around the swami he was not immersed in meditation not feeling the world not like that he was away just like us he was watching the operation smiling okay how is that possible the amazing thing happened next day when the surgeon came and was about to dress the wound so he opened the bandage about to clean the wound and the swami shouted in pain oh what are you doing the surgeon was mystified i know this hurts but yesterday it was worse <laughs> much more and you remain calm and now you are shouting in pain what what 
And the Swami said, yes, but you should tell me that when you're doing it, then I'll take my mind away from it. <laughs> as easy as that. So that gives us a clue to the state of these enlightened beings. They remain connected with body and mind the way we are. But they, the moment it is required, problems come, suffering comes, they can retreat to their spiritual fortress of solitude, huh? fortress of solitude, supernatural. They can realize that, yes, it is nothing to me. What is unbearable to us is easily bearable to them. Now the other story is of a monk many years later, which I have heard, I don't know how true it is. He was about to have an operation in his hand and the doctor said, we need some um, anesthesia and the, doc- and the Swami said, no need. I know I am the witness consciousness. This is an object. You cut. Uh, I've read all the Vedanta and everything, so uh, I don't need anesthesia. The doctor said, are you still sure, Swami? Yes. I have read it all. Famous last words. <laughs> and the doctor cut and the Swami, Swami shouted, oh, stop, stop, give me anesthesia, it hurts. The doctor said, what happened? Aren't you the witness consciousness? And the Swami, this works in Hindi. He said, shouted in Hindi, I'll translate for you. He said, oh, sala kitab ka baat kitab mein rahe diya. <laughs> oh, all that textual, text stuff, in the book stuff, it is in the books. It remained in the books. It doesn't have the punch. It doesn't have the punch in English. It means all the theoretical knowledge is in the books. It didn't help me here. <laughs> because no matter what I have understood, the intellect is understood. I don't feel that way. That will happen when it deepens. It will, uh, it will work. But start out small. Uh, I say your dad gives you a rich kid, dad gives you a Ferrari. You don't even know how to drive. And you say, I'm going to start driving in Manhattan. What will happen? You crash. But start small. Start in the parking lot. With not with a Ferrari, with a little, uh, what, what, what vehicles? Safe vehicle? Something. Yes. Volkswagen. Volkswagen, yes. Start with that in, in uh, the parking lot. Vedanta also, when you start applying it, apply it to a minor ache, a small insult, a little depression, and see how the cloud lifts and goes away. Now, what is one more point? Shankaracharya says, there is an effect of even the Vedantic study which you are doing. It loosens the bonds of samsara. So even before enlightenment, long before that, we feel freer, we feel better, we feel a little more elevated. The hold which samsara has on us is still there, but not as strongly, not as irrevocably. Shankaracharya in his definition of the word Upanishad, you know, fundamental texts of Vedanta Upanishads in the in his commentary on the Katha Upanishad, where the story of Yama and Nachiketa is there, he defines Upanishad. What is the meaning of Upanishad? He defines it as Upa Ni Sat. Upa means going near this knowledge. It would practically mean going near a teacher or going to a seminar or a workshop or a satsang. Upa, going near. Ni means with clarity, with not doubtful knowledge. See, what we are talking about, I know it intellectually, but it's I'm having problems in knee refers to nishchayena absolute clarity is there it's no longer there is no question of confusion and sat the word sat the, the dhatu sat has three meanings vicharana gati avasavana it destroys 
ignorance. It takes you to Brahman. Takes you to Brahman means means it makes you realize. Doesn't physically take you anywhere. And Avasana, it it uh, it loosens the bonds of samsara. That that happens as we progress. It's not that there's only a payoff at the very end. Every little bit of this helps. Swalpam apiyasya dharmasya trayate mahato bhayat. Even a little practice of this saves one from great fear. In in continuation to that, if everything is Maya, is it are we going through some sort of punishment? Or maybe the God got little bored and said, Okay, give the body to the Atma and once they realize that there is a you know, they are different and we'll enlighten and once enlightened we'll free them. It what is I mean sometimes I wonder what is what is this that I'm doing being a human here? Yes, yes. And all these theories are there. Even the punishment theory is there. The, the fall of man. Yeah. The mythology is there in many religions. That we were in a perfected state. And we have fallen away from that. And we are trying to regain it. Why have we fallen away? Many theories are there. So, take your pick. <laughs> Original sin, karma. In Hindu, Buddhist, the answer we, we come up with in Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, the Indian religion, Sikhism, is karma. Why are we like this? If I am Atman, Brahman, you are like this because of your past karma. Where did that past karma come from? Past life. Where did that life come from? The karma before that. In an unending, beginningless chain of cause and effect. You will immediately ask, how did it all start? As I said, beginningless. So they have already thought of that. They know you're going to ask that. <laughs> Anadi, beginningless. But it has an end. Enlightenment is the end, or realization is the end. Karma is one theory. What is the Advaita approach to it? It has not happened. It is illusion or it is it is confusion. You still are perfect. It's like a dream. In a dream, though you are perfectly safe and sound on your bed and sleeping, you're having a nightmare. Maybe you are missing a plane or a bus or something like that. Or maybe something terrible is happening and there is anxiety and fear and then you wake up. Now tell me, was everything alright? Yes. Did you suffer? Yes. For what reason? Nothing. The only reason is not knowing the truth. So Vedanta says not knowing your real nature is the cause of this. Why am I this? Not knowing. But why do I not know? If you ask, there is no answer to that. The only answer to that is no. Everybody says control your senses, right? Yeah. So, at least the literature I read, most of them says, no, you do yoga, you do meditation to control your senses. What does Jnana Mata say? Control your senses. Absolutely. More than others. You see, it's not just spiritual life. Civilization itself depends on our controlling our senses. If you go to any theory, go to Freud, we spoke, spoke about Freud, who had absolutely no interest in it. He had interest, but he did not believe in religion. He was not a believer in uh, religion. But what did he say? The whole, he saw the whole structure of human, our problem is this conflict of trying to control ourselves. There is our ego functions as the eat, the basic instincts coming up from our subconscious. 
I want this. I want to eat that. I want to fight with that. I want to punch that fellow. And then there is a super ego, which has been inculcated by society. Parents have told us, no, don't grab, ask for permission, share with your friends. Don't hit your friend. Say sorry. This is super ego. It is telling the id to just to go against its real nature. Aid is going against uh, what the super ego is saying. Super ego is trying to suppress stuff. Aid, you can think of the aid as a very naughty um, three-year-old or four-year-old. <laughs> and super ego is like the yeah. harassed, not just parent, harassed parent. <laughs> Frazzled parent. <laughs> trying to manage. In between is the ego. The feeling of I which you have. All three are the ego. But in between is the ego which tries to balance the superego and the eat. Negotiates. Don't grab it, but have one. <laughs> some concession to the eat, some concession to super. Now this, when the ego fails to balance, uh, mental conflicts, psychosis, neurosis develop. So that's very oversimplified version of it. If there are psychoanalysts, I, I say sorry because this is this is too simplified. But this is basically the idea. Notice what is required there. Control of the senses required. Control of oneself. Civilization depends on control of the senses. Now personal success, you want to earn a lot of money, you have to control yourself. You want to go get through B school, business school, you have to control yourself. Isn't it true? All of us who have achieved something in education, in career, you had to control. Certain things you have to sacrifice to get something else. This whole thing, in that marshmallow experiment I mentioned, something those of you who know, originally conducted by Walter Michel on four-year-old kids. But now you see the videos on uh, YouTube by Zimbardo, who is a very well-known, his book on psychology is the basic textbook across the world, Philip Zimbardo. It's basically an experiment conducted on four-year-olds about self-control. And the idea they got was, the result they got was, those kids who have the ability to control their desires to sacrifice present pleasure for future gain, they will succeed in life. And by succeeding, it means absolutely material success. They will be good at studies, they will be popular with friends, parents and teachers will like them, and they will be successful in work life afterwards. All of that, in their marriage and relationships, all of that possibility of success increases if you have that self-control. More of that is demanded in spiritual life. Because a certain environment has to be created for spiritual practice and enlightenment. After enlightenment, the practice of control becomes natural. What will pull you when you, are, you feel you are, comp you are complete, you are full? You don't need anything from outside. What can attract you? You see that we talked about an infinite happiness within ourselves. Then what will attempt you? What can scare you? You are immortal. What can destroy you? Nothing can destroy you. So what can scare you? Nothing. So the problem of control of the senses is solved when you are enlightened. But before that, there must be an effort. Yoga de demands it. Yoga demands it. That's why yoga is a difficult path. Bhakti is a little used, easier because um, the problem of the senses control is, is not channeled towards God. You love beautiful things. Alright, offer it to God. You love good smells, flowers and incense. Offer it to God. You love good food. 
Alright, make it prasad. Offer it to God and say it is prasad. You love to love. Instead of scattering it in the world, you constantly take all that love and offer it to the Lord. So those very senses themselves, uh, they are channelized towards God. Tantra goes one step further. Even the, in the enjoyment of the worldly things, the indulgence in the senses, they are now channelized and directed towards enlightenment. Advaita Vedanta takes one big jump. You realize this, I am Brahman, then act accordingly. The moment you try to act accordingly, you see, pain is there. I'm trying to see it as an object. What are you doing? You're doing tremendous control of the senses. Your senses want you to scream. But you're not doing that, not out of willpower. Trying to be true to your knowledge. If I am if I'm convinced I am not the body, I am the awareness of the body. I am the awareness of the sensation of pain. So I must be separate from it. I should be able to overcome this, even while experiencing it. That requires a lot of control of the, of the senses. This Swami Turiyananda I mentioned, he was an epitome, epitome of control, self-control. You have to imagine heat like this. 105 and 100% humidity. It's it's dry here, but imagine that. It's like somebody said, it's like it's in, in our monastery in India on the bank of the Ganga. It's like walking through hot soup. <laughs> you just stand there, you'll be drenched in sweat. And in the summer months, a very cool drink like lassi is offered to in the temple to the Lord, like bhoga, and then the prasad, the it is taken as the sacred food, uh, sacred offering. So it is, every monk gets it one day of the year. So it's, it's, it's delicious. Even now they do it. I got it also. Every, every year I would say one day of the year. <laughs> it's really delicious. I don't know why they, maybe there's something special about which being offered to God and given back again to you. So there's a story about Swami Turiyan in those early days of Galurvat, the main monastery. That day it was his turn. Somebody brought it to him. He took one sip and he returned it. Take it away. Why Swami? Is it not good? He said, it is good. That's why. <laughs> Did you not like it? I liked it. That's why. I'm returning it. He didn't need to do that. But it's just a teaching for the rest of us. Swami Ji, yes. on, on this exact question on control and discipline, uh, I feel that our youth of this day and age have to be even more controlled because of the environment and all the temptation and internet and yeah. Twitter and this. They have to be like super conscious that they're in their sadhana, so to speak. True. Whatever you want in life. You want to be a success as a musician. I know there's a Juilliard school of music in just very close, a couple of streets away from our ashram. It's like the top school for Western music, right? In the Western world, classical music, dance. But the amount of effort the kids put in there, they're made to put in. And in association, the parents also put in. From early in the morning until late in the night, running after the kids and taking them and paying. Yeah, hey, that's big sadhana. <laughs> there was a there was a, a, a cartoon. Uh, son, daughter, daughter is there. Son is there. Youngest son is there. They are all standing with their gadgets. Uh, daughter says iPhone, and the uh, son is saying iMac, 
and the little kid is saying I part and the dad is standing behind with a glum face I paid <laughs> I paid <laughs> that is true and uh, this is a subject in itself how this modern technology which is so wonderful you know, in our pocket but it's also very distracting and it is becoming more distracting there was a talk I think brain hacking or mind hacking by an ex-Google engineer. Uh, I think it was on PBS. It was a uh, 60 minute talk. Do you remember? Anybody remember? Or, or 60 minutes or something like that. Um, just Google mind hacking or brain hacking and you see a Google engineer who actually revealed that in Silicon Valley a small group of companies and a small group of dedicated task force in Twitter, Facebook, and some of the other social media platforms, how they are working to make these phones more addictive. For example, have you noticed in recent times the phones make a little ding, little buzz, little beep, little little prompt? Why? Yes, it's drawing your attention. Something has happened. A text has come, an advertisement has come, something or the other. But why do they do it, you know? They say that they offer little rewards that when you hear the ding or the ping, if you look at the phone and something has come, there's a little bit of satisfaction which works, uh, gives you a little bit of dopamine in the brain. They're actually tra traced it. They say that this is the exact psychology of addiction. That's how slot machines, that's how Las Vegas is, works. <laughs> On a bigger scale. This is the psychology of addiction. Very soon you will feel uncomfortable. You keep looking at the phone, it's not doing anything. Why? What happened? <laughs> Nobody loves me. How, how can you get an addiction to the inquiry business into yourself? Uh, so, so this phone into Vedanta, yes. So this, this is, they are designing it to be more addictive, unfortunately. And the, the engineer said, people of the earlier generation do not understand this. Because your, your idea of phone is landline. It sits there. It doesn't do anything. But the modern phone is like not like that. Smartphone is continuously changing every day. It's downloading, changing, updating. It's becoming a different from phone from day to day. It's evolving. <laughs> and its prey is you. <laughs> yeah, they, were, they were saying that if it is if something on the internet or something, if it is free, then you are the product. Wow. If you are getting it for free, then that's not the product. You are the product. You are the product means you are the, your time. You are the victim. Victim or product, they will say. They don't want to victimize it, they want to monetize it. <laughs> so, there, I, they, it's a very nice talk, but it, I, it's enlightening. Uh, they said that, see now internet is full of content. So all websites and all there are so much things. If you give make a nice website, it's not enough. There's so many nice websites. So much content is there. It's over full, full with content. Now the only way to get people and to get your get people is to get your attention. So they call it attention economy. You have a limited attention. How can I grab most of your attention? Because then what will happen? That will translate into money. If I can show I am grabbing your attention, advertisers will pay me. So that's the basic idea. It's about money at the bottom of it. How do I grab your attention? 
make it spectacular, make it something that draws you, something that you like very much, something that appeals to our grossest instincts. He said, why has news, internet news become so, um, so, you know, um, sensational, extreme. The balanced reporting is, is not there. It is, there's a reason. The reason is competition. They're competing to draw your attention. The same thing if it is stated in an extreme way, agitating way, which makes you angry or excited or happy or furious. Furious, that's also good. You will read it. The same thing if it is stated in a very balanced way, boring. And unfortunately, this takes you further and further away from the truth in either direction. So he called it very nice. He called it, it's a race to the bottom of the brain cell. What is at the bottom of the brain stem? Our animal instincts. And they are powerful. So they will try to find out what is most powerful in you. Those animal instincts are powerful. Anger, lust, greed. If I can appeal to that, I can hook and get your attention. So he says, it's, he says it's just like being addicted to drugs. Please pause. On a minor scale. If it was like drugs, it would have been banned. But it's on a small scale so that it is not banned by, um, you know, and the federal drug agency or something like that. No. FDA. FDA. But it's enough to hook you, especially children. So training of attention. Daniel Goleman, the Daniel Goleman who wrote who became famous because he coined the term EQ, emotional intelligence. His latest book is on focus. He said, I have been hearing so much from parents and uh, teachers about how students are not paying attention. I think it's a it's a epidemic, a crisis of attention in our country. So he's written about focus. And that requires control of the senses. The opposite is sadhana. He is asking, how do you become addicted to, how do you become addicted to self inquiry? One good way, beauty, at least what I like about this path is, what is our favorite subject in the world? Ourselves. I, me, myself. Vedanta is, people think Vedanta is so boring, it's dry. No, it's about the most exciting thing, you. It's all totally about you and nothing else except you. Another thing why this path is so exciting is what we are dealing with is continuously present directly now. If, we, if it's something promised in the future, it becomes boring, and um, difficult to believe in and difficult to hold on to. But it's continuously available. But it requires you to, for some time, cut out other things and take this up until one develops a taste for it. The problem is not in the subject. Every subject you see there are people who are in love with that subject. It's just because we have not been trained in it. Our samskaras have not been developed. We find it boring. Even we used to always say, most boring subject, Sanskrit grammar. <laughs> but look at the Sanskrit grammar pundit. For that pundit, for the scholar of Sanskrit grammar, there is nothing more exciting and beautiful than Sanskrit grammar. More enjoyable than Sanskrit grammar. So the problem is not with Sanskrit grammar. The problem is with us. You had a question. Yes. For us in this world, that intense desire is there sometimes. You'll be there four days and you disappear two days and then you come back. So are there any tools we can use? Yes. Every one of the yogas has this. When you start practicing, have a daily practice. 
where regardless of whether you are in the mood for it or not, daily practice. Sometimes it will become mechanical, let it become mechanical. It should not be under the control of the whims of the mind. Morning I will sit down for meditation, I will do my prayers, I will do my study. Evening I will do to say, come what may. If it is too much work pressure and all, it will be reduced, but it will still be there. As a result, what happens is, the taste is developed. What you dwell on for a long time, even if mechanically, if you do it intensely and seriously, it will come much faster. If you don't do it seriously, just do it mechanically for a long time, it will still have its effect. Nothing in spiritual life is wasted. But it's good to do it intensely and, and uh, give more and more time to it. If we do not do, what will happen? Are we lost? No. But the, then, then the scenic route is there for us. Nature will lead us around through ups and downs, through suffering, kicks and blows until suffering drives us to spiritual life. But why take a painful road? So, a regular practice. They say, in the path of bhakti, for example, they say, vaidhi bhakti leads to para bhakti. Vaidhi bhakti means ritualistic bhakti. So I do puja, I do prayer, I listen to bhajans on the music system or I sing or chant myself. Over a period of time, real devotion, which is coming from within, not just a set of practices, that begins to come. That is the purpose of this. It was a, like a mold or a framework to allow the real devotion to germinate. I regularly sit for meditation. After some time, the mind becomes calm. And that gives a joy. Then the joy of that begins to pull me. Every path is like that. I start out by volunteering and serving, trying to serve my Lord in these ways. As I do it, the joy of service I begin to... There is an extraordinary joy in unselfishly doing things for others. People who have felt that joy, they will do it, they, they become self-motivated then. They do it more and more and more. And in this path of inquiry, once it begins to become real, and it's very fast, it becomes real because we are actually talking about ourselves, which is right here now. When you get the taste for it, it will be like nothing else. You can, you can spend your whole day on it. So that's how it develops. Have a regular practice. The four yogas in your life, even if mechanically, hold on to it. Very soon you will find that um, that's the most important thing in your life. So people will say that, I've seen. I'm not making progress, I've been doing this for so many years. And I said, then give it up, stop. No, no, I can't stop. <laughs> it's the most precious thing to me in my life. See, you're saying you're not making progress? This is great progress. Swamiji, when you say, uh, like, if you do a daily practice, it becomes mechanical. Uh, so, at, at a point, then you start experimenting. And you stop the practice that you are doing because it is not giving fruit no. and then you start something else. No. So how do we stick to a single path and not deviate? What we do in our order, I can only tell you that. Um, in Hinduism we have this concept of Ishta, Devata and Mantra. The Guru gives you a mantra and gives you a form, say Krishna or Shiva or Ramakrishna, whatever. In all the forms of gods and goddesses, you, you think about God in this particular form. And now, you, because your guru has given you that, and the mantra associated with it, and a way of practicing, this becomes your practice, a lifelong practice. No matter what, you may advance fast in spiritual life, have extraordinary spiritual experiences, 
whatever or not but you will hold on to this so this becomes foundational sometimes it's mechanical maybe for years it's mechanical maybe you're busy with many other things in life but you hold on to this don't stop it one day you will come back to it and then it, that becomes your entire life yes Swamiji that experience say that if a person keeps on repeating certain things mechanically hmm. while thinking something else at the same time hmm. over and over you know it keeps on going the mind will become dull if a person is saying doing some japa hmm. and is thinking that I have to go and I have to bribe yep. this guy or I have to do something else from the mouth japa is happening I a person is doing mala also right. so that really doesn't help does not appear to help at that moment what that person has to do is to intensify his or her practice but not stop the practice that is no solution that mala japa itself will help but intensify shut your eyes forget the guy to be bright for the time being at least and re repeat the mala japa more intensely then you feel a certain disgust about bribing that mind becomes sattvic and then i see i i will not indulge in those see it, with some amount of attention and devotion if i repeat the mantra and sit and repeat the mantra or listen to a devotional song and pray uh, like a child to the lord after that low thoughts activities you don't feel like it anymore i don't feel like it anymore what has happened it's not that there is a permanent change which has come the mind has been made sattvic at least for the time being which means that my mind itself can go to a state where the things which it indulges in it doesn't want to do those things stay more and more in that state so um, how do you achieve your dreams and while still focused in the danta what was this suddenly went into a mouth it's it's ice <laughs> what dreams <laughs> see for a dedicated one point of pursuit of vedanta my dream is enlightenment or god realization that day we showed the progress in in spiritual life how we move ahead in spiritual life do you remember the four stages one we are looking at is this the instinctive life pamara this means the uncultured instinctive person then vishayi who pursues worldly goals but with morality ethics discipline and what one might consider a decent person in the world what the same thing as this pamana one but something but on the basis of morality ethics within the limits and then sadaka spiritual seeker and then the siddha the enlightened one so what does the pamana want the four goals of human life dharma kama moksha the pamara wants 
um, karma, pleasure, artha, wealth, and there's a whole spectrum. Power means instinctive life. So whatever I want, whatever desire comes up, like that id, I want to do that. It could be at the bottom of this spectrum, could be a person who's a drug addict, who's an alcoholic, who just lives for the next drink of the drug. Nothing else, because he's overwhelmed by that, cannot control. It is a very miserable life, actually. On another end of the spectrum could be a person who is really a successful person in the world. Uh, multi-millionaire, maybe rich and famous, whatever it is. But no, basically, not a decent person, not a good person. We know such people in the world who would do anything to achieve their uh, goals, as long as they are not caught by the government or the police or the IRS. So break the laws if they can get away with it. And whether it is in in um, you know Wall Street or Hollywood or in politics, wherever there are such people, the power. Better than that is the Vishayi. Vishayi means literally worldly, but not in a bad sense. It means a dharmika Vishayi. On the basis of dharma, dharma is broad term, morality, ethics, religion, good person. In this country, at one time, we have been called a good, decent, church-going Christian um, uh, uh, Yeah. So, they are decent people. Like they are the uh, bedrock of society and most people in the world are somewhere in this spectrum. This is also a spectrum. There might be some really good people and average, but not like this. So dharma on the basis of morality and ethics and religion. Still, what is the goal, what are the dreams of this person? Still the same thing. Kama and artha. I want to be rich, I want to enjoy life, I want to party, have better vacations, better gadgets, better good school district for my kids, whatever it could be. All, but all worldly things. And that's the, there's nothing wrong with this, but it, it's just, just that much. Don't worry, none of you are among these. So no, Swami, you don't know me. No, the very fact that you are here, that we are, we are searching for something higher in life, and it's not you're not here for the first time. You have been searching for all of us have been searching and pursuing this. So we are sadhakas. All of us here are sadhakas. And here, of course, it's, it's, it's a spectrum also. What is the sadhaka looking for? The sadhaka is looking for moksha. So is the sadhaka against dharma somebody asks? No. Sadhaka also follows dharma more strictly than this person. But it's a nishkama dharma. Not, um, I'm not being moral. So that I can get good things in society, in life and society. No, I am being moral because without that I cannot be spiritual. So morality is a basis, foundation of spirituality. What is the sadhaka's dream? Moksha. Why I am saying moksha? The four goals of human life. You know, in Hinduism, dharma, artha, kama, moksha. Dharma is conventional ethics, morality, decency, religion. Artha is wealth and success and power in life. Karma is pleasure, all kinds. And every, every one of them has a whole spectrum. It could be the pleasure of a cookie up to the pleasure of listening to classical music, which requires a lot of refinement and training. But all of it is under pleasure. And uh, the sadhaka wants moksha. Call it what you will. Enlightenment, moksha, nirvana, salvation. That's a sadhaka. 
and there may be maybe a whole spectrum here. At the bottom end of the spectrum may be a sadhaka who wants this, but also still wants some of these things. I mean, there could be many such people. What trans what's the difference between this? How do we rise from this to this when moksha becomes the central thing in my life? Ultimately, my purpose, whether I say it or not, I want spiritual enlightenment. Right now, I have to hold a job. Right now, I have to maybe take care of my kids. So for that, I have to hold a job. And when you're in a job, you have responsibilities. The organization pays you. So you have to achieve certain things there. So all those things. See, Krishna Arjuna in the Gita, he starts off the Gita here as a good, worthy person who is out to claim his rightful kingdom, defeat the villains, he's a warrior, so he has to protect the right and punish the evil, so he's defeating his evil cousins, that's why he has come to the battlefield, he's about to fight the war, then what happens? He jumps from here to here. How? He gets the shock of his life. What's the point of all this? Even if I get the, get the kingdom, to kill my own cousins, yeah, I know they're bad people, I know it's my, my duty, it's as a warrior, but the whole thing seems pointless and murderous. So I don't want the kingdom anymore. The Arthan now, you see, renunciation. I don't want them anymore. They're not attractive to me. I'd rather leave all of it and go away. Then Krishna teaches him about Vedanta. There is Atman, that has to be realized. With that realization you go beyond the cycle of birth and death. You rise above suffering. That is the goal of human life. Arjuna says, Oh, I want that. He starts asking questions. That's how they read up 18 chapters. <laughs> he asks a question, new, new, new chapter starts. So he becomes a spiritual inquirer. Of course, there's a little wrinkle in this. What Krishna tells him is, Don't run away from this. The, what you were doing earlier for worldly goals, now do it as a sadhana, as, as, not as karma, as karma yoga. Same duty. So you can still be engaged in the world. You can still take care of your kids. You can still hold a job. But that will not be the ultimate goal of your life anymore. In many cases, in our case, we are, we are here means it's not the ultimate goal of our life. We are doing many things. Somebody is um, a corporate executive, somebody is a retired person, somebody is a monk. All we are doing many things, whatever our karma has brought us into. So, depending on your circumstances, you will have different goals, but those are all temporary. We all know that. Whatever your goal is, you know deep inside there is a higher goal, purpose to life, moksha. Then you are a sadhaka. If you start acting on it, pursuing it, your year means you are already acting on it. Then you are already a sadhaka. The only thing is to be a better sadhaka. We minimize these. Sri Ramakrishna would always say, play food and clothes. He would, when, he, when he would bless one time Narendranath, who became Vivekananda, was in dire circumstances. His father had died, the family was in debt, he couldn't get a job. And then he comes to, finally helplessly comes to Sri Ramakrishna and says, uh, please uh, pray to the Divine Mother, Kali. Brahman is useless. <laughs> Existence, consciousness, bliss. Will it give me money? No. Brahman can't give me money. Brahman is the same. If you are poor, it's the same Brahman. If you are very rich, it's the same Brahman. If you are very sick, same Brahman. From Brahman's point of view, there is no problem. Very healthy, same Brahman. Brahman 
if you want something in the world, the world is in the domain of Maya, the Divine Mother. If you want something in the world to change, it should be this way rather than that way. Up to, in Kama, Artha, Dharma, up to Moksha. It's entirely in the domain of Maya. Up to enlightenment. There also you have to play pray to the Divine Mother. Brahman is not going to lift a little Brahman finger to help you. <laughs> <laughs> Where you are, Brahman is perfectly automated. You see, this is true. This world could not exist the way it is without Brahman's support. So Brahman has ticked up. You want to be worldly and stay like this in samsara. Very good. Samsara exists because of Brahman. So, moksha. Making... Um, Oh, so when Sri asked Sri Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna said, why don't you go and pray to Kali? So yeah, Kali will help you to get money. It will change. Things in the world you want to change. This way or that way, Kali will help. Then um, Narendranath said, no, she listens to you. Because he didn't believe in these things. <laughs> he, was, he was a member of the Brahmo Samaj, which was a reform movement, no image worship and all like that. Vedanta was fine, but these things. So Sri Ramakrishna said, no, you go and pray. So he went, you know the story, he goes the first time and he comes back as if he's reading and drunk and Sri Ramakrishna asked him, what happened? He says, I saw the living form of the Divine Mother in the Kali Temple. Did you ask? He said, yes, I asked for knowledge and devotion and vairagya, uh, his passion. Yes, yes, that's all right, but did you ask for money? Did you ask for a job? Well, for God. <laughs> you fool, go back again. And then he went back. He came back and reported the same thing. Third time, so sent him back. Came back and reported the same thing. This time, Narayanath realized this is a game being played by Sri Ramakrishna. He said, you are doing this. You ask for it. I can't. And Sri Ramakrishna was so happy. Why? It shows Narayanath is not here. Narayanath is here. He's a spiritual seeker. Classic stereotype of a, you know, the epitome of a spiritual seeker. Not, he does not want these things. Even under pressure, even when he really needs it, when he, see, that's a test. When you are actually confronted with God, I will give you enlightenment or I will give you money. Choose. No, it's real for you. Nobody is watching. What will I choose? If I say I will choose enlightenment, you are a Sadhana. If I say I will choose worldly success and power, then you are a Vishayi. Yes. But he was trying to Obligation. True. So if he had chosen the other option, mm. would that have been the wrong thing to do? Good. Right or wrong is not important. What did he choose? He chose this. We make the way around the And Sri Ramakrishna was happy. Sri Ramakrishna wanted to see that. That even under pressure, even under obligations, when it comes to the crux, God herself in the Divine Mother's form, she is coming and offering me. One time only offer, take it or leave it. What will I say? My parents are suffering. My mother, father is dead, my mother is a widow and suffering, my little brothers and sisters are helpless. I can't, it's my duty to work for them. I can't do anything for them. Here is a chance. Or I can get devotion and knowledge and I want that. Even at the cost of this. And Sri Ramakrishna was happy. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Mm -hmm. 
That's why the tough case is, is a, we are generally not faced with such terrible things. But the tough case, the extreme case, illustrates to us what we should do actually. The other thing will be taken care of. What did Sri Ramakrishna say finally? He took care of it. Mother and um, brothers and sisters, Sri Ramakrishna said, all right. That what your desire, that other thing which you wanted, that also is given. But what? So that's the point. Sri Ramakrishna, he blessed them. They will never be in want of plain clothes and food. He didn't say they will become multi-millionaires. He could have showered them with in order spell. No. He didn't say that. That's not a blessing. It's a curse. It's not a blessing. It's a blessing if a person is very worldly. The person will not advance spiritually unless that person experiences a lot of worldly success and power. So God blesses with, may you be rich, may you have, um, you know, plentiful relationships. May you have a lot of people around you. May you have many experiences, wonderful things, power, wealth. Oh, what a great, wonderful wealth. It's really nice. No, God thinks very poorly of you. That's why. But Swami, isn't the way that Radha actually is taking care of the past karma is just stopping? Let's say Vivekananda actually asked for those things. But wouldn't it have stopped for his, his family to actually go to the Prada and get rid of it once and for all rather than could be in the cycle again. Right? No, I didn't understand. So if, if somebody else prays for somebody else, right? Um, if, if I did ask the mother that the same thing. So same thing means money and wealth and success. That's a better health and you know, whatever, right? So yeah. Uh, wouldn't it stop that part of the, which was actually the cause of why they are suffering? To be put on hold for now. No, don't bring that in because when you have an intervention by God herself, Divine Mother. Divine Mother is not subject to the laws of Prakarabdha. She can change it also. That's what God can do. That's why we pray to God. Karma Abhyaksha means, will normally give us the result. What will happen according to our past karma will happen. But on top of that, these things can be changed by God. Only God and Avatara have the power to change karma. We normally don't, don't get interventions by God. Generally what happens in general case is our past karma comes. So it's always much better. If you are a sadhaka, to hold on to more and more, hold on to God. In the worldly sense, it will be taken care of. I'm not saying you will win the lottery and be enormously rich. No. But you will not suffer unnecessarily also. God will never put us to, through tests which we cannot pass. So, and that's what happened. Vivekananda Narendra became Vivekananda. His mother and his brothers and um, sisters, they muddled through. And throughout his life, Vivekananda kept trying to help them. Raja of Khetri and others, he told them, you sent some money for my old mother. Only one thing I... He always regretted it. He's not an insensitive son. I became a monk. This is my real mission in life. That was, that's why Vivekananda, that's why we are sitting here today. <laughs> but, see, the whole of Indian Eastern spirituality coming to the West, all the yoga, all the Dalai Lama, Buddhism and Zen and... Uh, all sorts of Hindu teachers, whether it's ISKCON and self-realization, all of that followed on the footsteps of Vivekananda. That was part of Vivekananda's mission. To bring the entire 5,000 year wealth of spirituality in the East, make a bridge to the West also, so it becomes a global phenomenon today. So that was the vast mission, the play of God also. But Vivekananda was intensely human. 
he said my only sorrow in life was I was never able to take care of my my mother and uh, mm-hmm. you know. so that that he did so moksha and what does this one want the enlightened one neither moksha nor kama nor artha nor dharma no he's got everything is I am Brahman what does he want nothing the nirvana shatakam shankaracharya you know chidananda rupa shivo shivo I am of the nature of pure consciousness bliss I am Shiva, I am Shiva. There in one line he says, Na dharmo, na chato, na kamo, na moksha. Chidananda rupa, shivoham, shivoham. What do I want in life? Nothing. I do not want pleasure, I do not want worldly success, I do not want dharma, conventional religion, I do not want moksha. Why? Because he already got it. Yes, of moksha. There is a touching story about this. Holy Mother, Masharada, in, in the mother's house in Calcutta, Mayabadi, she is there. Many people used to visit. So a wandering monk comes one day, downstairs. And mother used to live upstairs. He does not speak. He sits there waiting because he wants something from the mother, divine mother. And so they try to give him things and send him on his way. He will not, he wants something from her. So they take message up to her. If there is a strange monk sitting there who will not speak, but he is waiting for something from you. So she picked up of the fruits which had been given to her. She picked up three fruits and said, "Give it to me." So they went and gave it to her. Or gave it to that monk. He saw them. He saw the fruits. And then again, I want. When this was reported to the mother, she smiled. She gave one more fruit and said, "Go and give it to him." The fourth one. What is the fourth one? Moksha. <laughs> The moment that one came, the monk took that and started dancing. And then happily danced his little bit out of the house and left. Not one word was spoken between mother and son. He knows what he wants and she knows what. But she tested once. She gave the three. If he had accepted those three and walked out, he would have probably lost his monastic life but might have become a very rich, powerful, something in the world, famous person. That's the effect of those three. But the fourth one is freedom, enlightenment. When he she paused once. That's the way the Divine Mother plays. There in the case of three fruits and one more fruit, for us, how many lives and one more life? <laughs> you go through this cycle. I've forgotten the question. Why was Vivekananda sad that he didn't take care of his mother? Because he couldn't, he became a monk. He didn't know he couldn't. Hmm. He left at a young age and he became a monk. So why? What, what? She wanted him to have a job, get married. She was a very nice lady, Bhuvaneshwari Devi, very pious, but she had very conventional ideas of what a proper son should do. Yes. But isn't uh, parental obligation an important thing? Oh, yes. Don't worry. But you shouldn't ask me. I haven't fulfilled my parental obligations. You should never ask a monk. <laughs> See, in our tradition, in Hinduism and Buddhism also, and Jainism also, there is only one excuse for not fulfilling your duties. Only one acceptable thing. What is that? If you give up the other duties for the sake of God realization. You can give up your family duties, your job obligations, your whatever obligations you have in life. If you, that's what a monk does, for example. Ignores all of that, gives up all of that for the search for God. 
But in that case, you have to be sincere. When we became monks, a senior monk told us when we joined the order 25 years ago, I still remember one of the first days. You have come away to become monks, giving up your parents and all your responsibilities. Made your mother cry. Remember, if you become a good monk, all those will be turned into blessings. But if you do not become a good monk, if you do not sincerely pursue this path, then each teardrop shed by your mother will be a curse on your life. So that's some strong motivation. motivation. <laughs> so uh, that is accepted in our scriptures. But if you ask, why is it so? Why is it accepted? There is a reason for that. After all, ask yourself, what is the point of life itself? All of this game of life, what is it played for? What is the whole point ultimately? The point is enlightenment and God-realization. Swami Vivekananda says, each soul is potentially divine. The goal is to manifest this divinity within, to realize your identity with God. That's the goal of life. And everything else, education, holding a job, taking care of your parents, these things help you to grow spiritually. But if you are taking directly only spiritual life, you want to realize God and only realize God, you are actually doing what the universe is made is, uh, uh, is designed to make you do. Then in that case, other obligations are left. But suppose I do not fulfill those obligations and I go off on just me and mine. Then from that point of view, you are actually regressing. And then the universe comes down on you with a hammer blow. That is bad karma. Whereas this thing seems to be bad. You are giving up all your obligations, your parents, who, uh, or whatever you have to do in society, your duties as a citizen, all of that you are giving up for some wild goose chase to realize God. It sounds like very bad karma. No, in our tradition, it is regarded as the highest good karma. Since the seven generations of a family like that are blessed. The mother is blessed, Janani Kritartha. Mother is blessed after the child. So, only because you are acting according to the divine plan. So, Swamiji, where is divine, divine play and uh, karma interact? I mean, isn't everything happening in divine order? Yes, the divine order is karma. And karma is nothing extraordinary, it's just cause and effect. So, wasn't uh, Swami Vivekananda predestined to be True, the but yes, but remember one thing. So everything happens according to divine karma, to the cause and effect karma. But the only exception is the one who who controls and administers the law of karma. So whatever is in your account, you will get in your bank, hopefully. But if you are friends with the bank manager, the top CEO of the bank, he can extend you a line of credit beyond what you deserve really. He can change things for you in, in your benefit to some extent. So, God, Ishwar, or the incarnation of God can do that. There is a word which we use, Kapala Mocha, who wipes out past karma. That can be done by God, by the grace of God. One good way of overcoming bad karma and getting good karma is to hold on to God. Hold on to God. Grace of God. That's why most of the people keep asking the question of grace, kripa. Mm. 
grace becomes important because we have reduced ourselves to such a pitiable extent that all this knowledge which we get doesn't seem to help us much. We make very little progress because we have very little strength left. We have become so worldly, so small, so helpless, enmeshed in the world. We need a real boost, a divine boost. That is karma. That is that is kripa, grace. That's why grace is so highly valued. But God always is giving grace. Sri Ramakrishna said something extraordinary. He lived, remember, on the bank of the river Ganga. So you would see these little graceful little boats with the little sails sailing on the bank, yeah, on the river. So he said, the wind of grace is always blowing. Raise your sail. Raise your sail. It will catch that wind and you will move faster. But isn't that bhakti yoga? Yes, it's, it's, it's bhakti yoga. So there's a difference, like if you if you follow in Gyan Yoga, mm. then grace is not that uh, not as important. But there's a whole book. Um, I forget his name, Malinowski or something, who did research grace in Shankara, and he's written a this thick book where all Shankara talks about grace. The word he uses is Anugraha. Yeah. Where does Shankara talk about grace in all the commentaries? And many times you'll be surprised. Upanishad. The fundamental texts of Advaita Vedanta, do they talk about grace? In one place, Kathopanishad, I think. Tastyesha Atma Vibhrunute Tanum Swam. Yame Vesha Vibhrunute Tastyesha Atma Vibhrunute Tanum Swam. Who will get enlightened? Who will realize the Atman? I am Brahma. Who will realize? We are very interested in this question. And the Upanishad itself says, whom, to whomsoever the Atman chooses to reveal itself, to that person it will reveal itself. What does it mean? Atman is not, does not choose anything. Atman, I am the Atman. What does it mean? A devotional interpretation is, upon the one to, on whom God has grace, that person will get enlightenment. So it's a straight interpretation. What does Shankara do with this? Whoever this Atman chooses, to that person Atman will reveal itself. Your own inner self. Shankara interprets in this way. Whom will the Atman choose? Whom will the Atman choose? Answer he writes is, whoever chooses the Atman. You have to choose the Atman. That means, you have to say, I want moksha, I want God realization, whatever. Once you say, I want, the rest God will take care of, will make things easy for you. Easy, spiritually easy, I am not saying materially easy. Yes, there are so many sources out there. And the author has bought those things in also. Because you ask Gyani Yoga, where is the scope of grace? No, it is a scope of grace. Avaduta Gita, one of the most extreme texts of non-dualism. There are two or three which are extreme texts of non-dualism. Ashtavakra, of course, very famous. Avaduta Gita, the same level, less famous, but at the same level. Extreme, uncompromising non-dualism. And those are what, are what I like to call Nididhyasara texts. They don't have arguments. They don't have fancy language, arguments, poetry, nothing. One grand monotony. You are Brahman. I am Brahman. Again and again and again and again, beginning to end. Wherever you open the book and pick, it just one thing. So Avadhuta Gita is like that. But in the first verse, Ishwara Nukraha Deva Pumsamadvaita Vasana. It is the special grace of God. What is the special grace of God? Your liking for non-duality. 
The very fact that you love non-duality, Advaita Vedanta, that is the highest grace of God. God has already given His grace because you have a liking for Vedanta. You are blessed. We are all blessed. I remember I went out looking for good Vedantic monks in the Himalayas, so it was part of my search. So one, once I said, they said, okay, you are interested in non-dual Vedanta, there is this monk who stays on the bank of the river in, Harit, uh, in uh, Rishikesh, Swargasha. So you go there, that particular cottage. So I went there and they warned me, he is a bitter sort of fellow, so not particularly liked by anybody else. He is one of those sour non-dualists. Don't talk about Ramakrishna there. Don't talk about devotion there. Only Jnana. I went to him and I got some snacks and like an offering, you know. And unfortunately discovered he has diabetes, so he had no use for those snacks. <laughs> anyway, but he said, first thing he told me, when I said I am interested in non-dualism, he said, Ishwara Vasana. Oh young monk, have you heard this line? You are blessed. The blessing of God is you like not of this. Everybody expected from you. <laughs> yes. Yes, Swamiji. Uh, you have been giving examples of other monks uh, in your life, how uh, and after enlightenment. Uh, can you share your experiences being enlightened and how you see things? Differently? How do you know I'm enlightened? <laughs> <laughs> Probably I'm assuming, but I'm believing that. I'm a very ordinary person. Don't bother about me. I'm just transmitting these things which are because I enjoy them, I like them, and I like studying, uh, talking about these things and sharing. So that's why I'm doing it. As far as I'm concerned, big zero. Don't even think about me. There are these glowing examples. If you want personal examples, always go for the highest. Ramakrishna, Vivekananda. Uh, direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna, many other great teachers, Ramana Maharshi, Nisargadatta, and all. Yeah, very good. That's it. One monk, I remember his name was Swami Nirmuktananda. At that time, when I spoke, this thing happened when I spoke with him, he was about 100 years old. Uh, he was a disciple of Swami Shivananda. Swami Shivananda was a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, the second president of our order. Not Shivananda of Divine Life Society, it's a different Shivananda. So this Swami Nirmuktananda, he was in Belur Mat. I um, the whole story goes like this. Swami Randanathanandaji, another disciple of Swami Shivananda, the president of the order. And Swami Nirmuktananda had gone to him and asked him, Swami, what will become of me? Both of them are very senior monks of the order. And Swami Randanathananda said to this Swami Nirmuktananda, This is your last life. I shall come back again, he said, Raghunathanji said, I shall come back again, but you don't have to come anymore. In English, he said, three sentences, this is your last life. I shall return again, but you don't have to come back anymore. So I have heard this. By that time, Swami Raghunathanji had passed away, but I wanted to verify it really. So one day I saw this, this old Swami, Nirmukthananda, who was nearly 99 or 100 at that time, was sitting on the, on the Holy Mother's temple, Masharada's temple, on the bank, little temple on the bank of the Ganga in Belurmat. He was sitting on that there on the side. A lot of devotees walking around. So I saw the Swami, I immediately took the opportunity, bowed down and said, Swami, I have heard this, that you went to President Maharaj, Ranana and you said, what will happen to me? And he said to you, 
I said up this much and the Swami repeated the whole thing. He said to me that this is your last life, I shall return again, but you don't have to come again. Now, the interesting thing came after that. Out of this whole thing, what thing, what did Swami Muktananda pick? He said, look at his attitude. He does not even want moksha. He wants to come back again and do Sri Ramakrishna's work, Swami Vivekananda's work. Swami Ramakrishna used to say this again and again. I said, yeah, yeah, but forget that. You have got the blessing. Somebody like Rangarathanji said that this is your last life. That means this is moksha for you, enlightenment, for, uh, release for you. His answer was so childlike and simple. See how level-headed he is. In Bengali he said, hey, Mahapurusha Ashirvan Takaja. Yes, it's the blessing of the Mahapurusha, the great souls. Swami Shivananda was called Mahapurusha, his guru. Let us see. He is not particularly excited about it or anything like that. Moksha. Then I thought, maybe I felt this Swami is enlightened. So I was asking that, um, so how does the enlightened person, sort of roundabout way, I didn't ask that, so because you are enlightened, no. How does the enlightened person see this? Does that person see one Brahman and this world of people, bodies, you know, and all these people, these buildings and the river, like a shadow, and underlying, underlying the sense of a more fundamental reality Brahman? He said immediately, just pause for a second and he said, no, there are no two, there is only one. That there is a shadowy world and there is Brahman, no, there is only one. Then I couldn't resist it anymore. I said, Swami, do you see it like that? Are you seeing this world? Seeing means experiencing it like that now. He smiled and said, many years ago, Swami, Jagadatmanandaji was there, a great disciple of the Holy Mother and was regarded in his lifetime known to be an enlightened person, Jivan Bhakta. Another Swami, Bodhananda, who was Buddhananda, who was the head of the Delhi Ramakrishna Mission, asked Swami Jagadananda, So, sir, are you enlightened? People say you are enlightened. Are you enlightened? And Jagadananda, who seems to have had a very, or those who saw him, said he had a most remarkable smile, very sweet, dripping with sweetness. He smiled and he said, if I say yes, will you believe? <laughs> and Buddhananda said, All right, Swami, that's it. I realized. And I said to Nebuktananda, All right, Swami, that's all right. I, I just touched his feet. I still remember the scene is so glowingly fresh in my uh, memory. And I walked away from there. So uh, it is very nice to know that there are enlightened people. I know why people ask this. It's nice. We read that there are enlightened people. It's good to meet such people. And I personally believe, this much I can tell you, that I have met such people, whom I, all, I mean, most conservatively speaking, I would say these, these four or five are enlightened beings. Um, three, four of them were in our order, and one was a wandering monk outside. I have met and spent time with them, talked with them. I'm sure there are many more than that, but these are I'm sure about that. Swami regarding the power of the karma, I heard that for a long time I have a doubt like about what is the first life. There is no first life. In, in uh, Vedanta you see it says anadi maya, beginningless. You say the chain is this, avidya kama karma, Shakrachari uses this phrase. Avidya means ignorance, ignorance of what? My nature is Brahman. 
Kama means desire. Because I am ignorant of my nature as the infinite, I feel myself to be finite, then I have desire. I want this, I want that, I want that. Moment I have desire, karma, I start doing things with desire. If it is within dharma, then the result will be good. If it is outside dharma, adharma, the result will be painful. But whatever happens, karma will start giving results and then birth after birth will come to get. And as through those births I do new karma, prompted by karma, prompted by avidya and new karma phala will come. And so the cycle of birth and death continues. Where did it start? Because of karma. Where did karma start? Because of desire. Where did desire start? Because of ajnana, avidya. Where did it start? It did not start. It is beginningless. You might say, what a strange answer. You are avoiding. No. This uh, a great philosopher pointed this out to us once. Professor J.N. Mahanti in India. He, he, he lives here now, but he, he is the star. Simple example. Ignorance is beginningless. Suppose I, he said, suppose I ask you, do you know German? He said, no. Remember, this is an audience in Calcutta. No. Suppose I ask you, so are you are ignorant of German? Yes. When did the ignorance of German start? From <laughs> <laughs> my very birth, I don't know German. So before your birth, you know German? No, no, no. Ignorance, any kind of ignorance, something that you don't know, you don't know it beginninglessly. But it's beginningless, but it has an end. The moment you start take up a textbook and enroll in uh, a German course, you start speaking. What? Rosetta Stone. On some, <laughs> there are some other programs nowadays, apps available. Uh, what? Drillio. or some language courses. You start learning, the moment you start learning, the ignorance about German starts dissipating. So the ignorance, avidya has an end. When knowledge arises, ignorance goes. But avidya itself and its consequences are timeless, beginningless. So like that. You see, it doesn't mean really I'm not convinced. Actually, what it means is none of this is ultimately um, coherent or logical. Fact is Brahman only is there. This is what is might be called a fault line in Maya. If you push, you'll come to an inconsistency. Not just uh, this uh, idea of karma. Anything you push in Maya, you'll come to a fault line. Impossibility. In fact, in Manhattan there was a very nice conference, two-day workshop on unknowability. And the unknowability in physics, very well-known um, mathematical, mathematical physicist, Sir John Barrow, he gave a wonderful talk, really impressive talk on unknowability in physics. Then there was a talk on unknowability in mathematics, a very famous mathematician, I forget. Okay. Unknowability in history, unknowability in literature, unknowability in psychology, unknowability in sociology. Everywhere they say if you push hard you come to a barrier <coughs> beyond which you end up with a paradox. Now as any, this is any field when it advances, there will come a point, first it's all mysterious, then there will come a point when it seems you are able, able to solve all the problems in the field. As you push further, you come to a point you are left with a paradox. One person who was supposed to come to that seminar did not come, Rebecca Goldstein. She is a philosopher living in England. She has written a book on Kurt Godel, the mathematician. Godel's incompleteness theorem. He was in Princeton. 
In the introduction, she says, in 19th century scientists, if you had asked, what do you expect of science in the next 50 years, 20th century? They would have said, we are confident all the remaining problems in our fields, physics and chemistry and mathematics will be solved. That was the confidence. In the 20th century, what are the three greatest discoveries in uh, science, pure science? What are the three greatest discoveries? Einstein's theory of relativity, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, and Gödel's incompleteness theorem. She says, look at the names. Relativity, uncertainty, incompleteness. When I read this, I thought, my God, these are the names of Maya. <laughs> this is the very structure of the universe. Is it that we have become confused or not confused? We have actually come to the truth. This is the truth. This is the truth of the universe. If you probe Maya, because Maya is Maya, we don't probe it's all nice. If you probe deeply enough, scientifically enough, rigorously enough, you'll end up with inconsistencies, paradoxes. It doesn't add up. Why? Because it doesn't add up. There's something wrong here. You're living in the matrix. Matrix movie. <laughs> They call it the great mystery also. Great mystery, but this is great mystery exposed by rigorous scientific thinking and investigation. The best cutting edge knowledge of 20th century is this. Relativity, incompleteness, inconsistency. inconsistency. Relativity, what did I say? Uncertainty, Uncertainty and incompleteness. Incompleteness. If you are asked a scientist in the 19th, 19th century who had confidence in science, they would have said, we, are, we expect not relativity, absoluteness. We expect not uncertainty, we expect certainty. We expect not incompleteness. Actually, there was a whole program, a mathematician told me, a very famous mathematician, at the beginning of 20th century, set out a program for completing mathematics. Um, what was his name? Very great mathematician, German mathematician. No. Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. At the Paris Congress of Mathematics. He proposed, Inter ten, he proposed ten, problems. ten problems and mathematics would be completed. Yeah. One of them. And this whole program, it took a tremendous hit when Gödel published this, his first papers on, two papers on incompleteness. This cannot be completed. That is the answer. No answer. <laughs> That's why, in um, when you ask what is the first beginning of, of you are basically answered asking really deep philosophically. If you put that question, what's the first birth? How it started? You are asking how Maya started. Can I ask one more question? Wait, how Maya started? You are asking. You know what is the? I said all these things, but if you ask a Southern Uttarakhand, you know what their answer will be? Their answer is. Maya ko kaatiye, Maya ko mat Don't try to establish Maya. Don't try to say, make Maya, you know, explain Maya as a real thing. No, it's not real. Try to go beyond Maya. Okay, ask, we all run out of time. So, um, every year, the entire global population is increasing. I already know the question, but anyway, ask him. <laughs> so, this is uh, count a human can we assume that it is a transforming the animal bodies to human body, all these things? How this count is growing? 
And you can say that, but it, it, it won't work because there was a time when there were no animal bodies also, no human bodies also. Where were all the souls? Yeah. So they say the infinite number of jivas are there and they are transi transitioning through many bodies. If there is a disaster on this planet, all human animal bodies also everything will perish. But the, the jivas will not perish. They will remain until they get a chance to get uh, environment and bodies. So it does not mean that animals are becoming more human beings. Not necessarily. More jivas are being born as human beings. Not that all jivas have already got bodies. Many are in cold storage. <laughs> so, and this is not the only loka. There are so many words according to. And all of this, Advaita Vedanta, this is the general idea in Hinduism, or Buddhism, Jainism also. Advaita Vedanta, but it has a peculiar take on it. It says, don't take all these things seriously. None of it is true. How will you explain the population in your dreams? Population in my dreams is expanding. Many more. So are many jivas coming into my dream? No. There is no jiva at all. There is only you. Nobody. And you can appear as a world full of... In your dream, if you are walking down to New York and somebody asks, Sir, what do, you, what do you think is the population of the world? You will say, oh, this world, it has 7 billion human beings and many other um, uh, living creatures. But it's a dream world. You wake up and you... So all the 7 billion human beings that you thought about, there is nothing other than you, the dreamer. Mm -hmm. It is that one Brahman alone, which appears to be so many jivas, there is only one reality. It's not even that there are so many jivas. Don't take these things seriously. It's a framework. The whole point, the only thing to be taken seriously is you yourself. What am I? And not the contents of my experience, the experiencing consciousness. So thank you very much. Hilbert. David Hilbert. Hilbert. Very great mathematician. David Hilbert. Extraordinary mathematician. He proposed completion of mathematics. International Congress of Mathematics, ICM Paris. He proposed that. David Hilbert. It was attended by Bertrand Russell and many others also. Um, so, thank you very much for coming. I was thinking, what will we talk about for two hours? <laughs> Time has passed just like that, see? Six, ten already. Let me do a Shanti Mantra. Om Shanti 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 Hari What I started with, self-enquiry. All these questions, if you had asked Raman Marshi, for example, what would his answer have been? Who is asking? One answer. Because that is the whole point, self-enquiry. So many jivas are there, how are they coming? Who wants to know this? It's not that he is avoiding the question, that is the real answer. If you find out who you are, every, everything else falls into place. <laughs>